Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John for one last time uh, before our summer series in the parables starting next Sunday. So one last time in John. We're going to finish out John chapter 8. We've spent many messages in John chapter 8 because it's a very long chapter. It's a very rich chapter. I'm excited to get into John chapter 9. I'm kind of bummed that we're moving into a different series, but at the same time, I think it'll be good. John chapter 9 has been something I was reading um, almost every day while I was in the hospital with uh, Tyler because John chapter 9 is about the man born blind and there's a question, why is he this way? Uh, The disciples ask that, the Pharisees are wondering that, and God says, it's not about causality, it's about purpose. It's not that he did anything, it's not that you did anything, it's because God means to be glorified in what's happening. So I'm excited to spend the summer getting ready for John chapter 9 when we hit September. So John chapter 8, we need to finish out this section and it ends at a high point. It's, it's a low point because it's the, the, the finality of attrition. The, the Pharisees have been arguing with Jesus actually 10 times in chapter 8 alone. The Pharisees either blaspheme him or accuse him or uh, argue against him in some way, shape, or form. 10 times. We're coming to... The last of those ten times. But Jesus is going to respond. Every single time he responds with truth. Every time a a blasphemy comes, he responds with, this is the truth, not what you're saying. Every single time after he responds with truth, he responds with a gracious invitation and a gracious offer. And he gives us a beautiful picture of how we are to respond when we face opposition. We've seen over the last couple weeks Uh, the defining characteristic of what it means to be a disciple and how being a disciple of Jesus Christ sets you free and you're made a son or a daughter, you're adopted. And then we saw the answer that religion gives to that. Jesus says, I'm the only way. If you're to be free, you must be freed by me. And religion says, I can free myself. I'm okay, I can do it myself. And we saw how religion answers that gracious offer of freedom. The Jewish leaders did not love Jesus. They did not accept him. They didn't treasure his word. And you remember those were the two qualifying characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You love him and you treasure his word. But the Jewish leaders did not see Jesus as God. They didn't value his words. Therefore, Jesus is going to end this section by saying emphatically one last time to them, I am God. I am God. And very succinctly give them a gracious offer a gracious invitation to accept him, to believe in him and his words. And he's going to tell them one of the most amazing, breathtaking promises to those who believe Jesus and believe his word. Let's read these verses together. John chapter 8, verse 48 through the end of the chapter. The Jews answered and said to Jesus, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. You dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks it and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he's never going to taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, 
If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I don't know him, I would be a liar just like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. God, I pray that as we end our time in John chapter 8, that you would speak powerfully from your word. God, we need our minds renewed. We need our desires shaped. We need passions recreated and redirected. We need a greater vision of who you are. We know intellectually that you are the Son of God, that you are God, very God. We need to see it again. And God, we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But we need to see it again. We need to be reminded again that those who are in Christ will never even see death. So God, be pleased to awaken in us affections for your son that perhaps weren't even there when we entered this room today. May we see the way Jesus responds to his critics. And may we respond with grace the same way he did to our opposition. And ultimately, God, may Jesus be put on display for all to see this moment so that we would follow him for the rest of our lives. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The main point of these verses is just very clearly, you don't have to die if you follow Jesus, who is the God of the universe. If you want to put it in as a succinct statement as possible, Jesus is the God of the universe. And if you follow him, you never have to die. Jesus is the God of the universe. And if you follow him, you never have to die. So what I want to do this morning is instead of giving an outline, um, I just want to give you two points that we'll see constantly through these verses. And the two points are in your bulletin. It's the title of the message. Uh, These two points are just clearly the deity of Jesus and the death of death. We're going to see Jesus as God, and we're going to see death as being null and void and pointless and something that we never have to taste or see or fear. So let's work through uh, and walk our way through these verses as Jesus is being assaulted again, being questioned, being accused, um, the truth will always win. Error cannot win out against the truth. And so as the Pharisees, who are erroneous, are speaking with Jesus, who is the truth, I am the way, the truth, the life. He is the truth. So they are going to fail. They can't win. But they start by saying in verse 48, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So do we not say, that word say means that they've been doing this for several uh, moments, for, for months, for years even. This is what we've been saying all along. This is in our vernacular. We've been saying this all along. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. 
Uh, you know that they've been saying this. You can just write down Matthew chapter 11, verse 18. The Pharisees say he has a demon. They don't just say that he's demon-possessed. Even more than that, Mark chapter 3, verse 22, they say that he's possessed by the ruler of demons, by Beelzebub, by Satan himself. So they say, you're possessed. You're possessed. You're calling us children of the devil. Um, it's actually you who are demon-possessed, Jesus. And then they call him a Samaritan. Why do they do that? Uh, back in 2 Kings chapter 17, there's a description of when the Samaritans originated. Samaritans were inbred people. They were uh, married with pagan uh, idolaters. Um, they were Jewish people through and through that stayed behind when Assyria came in and took away all the Jewish people. They left some people there and they brought a bunch of Assyrians over and they intermarried. And those Jewish people that intermarried with the Assyrians and with other pagan nations, those Jewish people were looked down upon by pure Jews. So descendants, especially from Samaritans, were considered less than people. In fact, they were considered worse in the Jewish mindset and Jewish eyes. Samaritans were considered worse than Gentiles because Samaritans had given up their birthright as Jewish people. They had let it go away. They had sold it. So the Samaritans say, in effect, Jesus, you're worse than a Gentile. You're worse than a pagan. There's another thing that they might be saying here. If you go back to verse 41, when they say we were not born in fornication, if that is meaning that they're talking about the scandal that followed Jesus, Jesus was born out of wedlock, and so there was a scandal, he was born of fornication, then I think this verse in verse 48, uh, this word Samaritan, could be a reference even to them saying, not only were you born of fornication, But your dad was a Roman soldier. This was actually a tradition that was passed down that we know about, that some people, especially the Pharisees, uh, thought that Jesus' father was actually just a Roman soldier. And so he would be technically a Samaritan, a Jewish woman married, pure Jew through and through, um, committing adultery with infidelity with a Roman soldier, bearing a Samaritan-type offspring. They're cursing him. They're accusing him. And Jesus answers very, very clearly, I don't have a demon. He speaks the truth. He speaks the truth. I honor my father, verse 49. You dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks my glory, in parentheses, and judges. What he's saying is I don't need to defend myself. I don't have a demon, but I don't even need to defend myself because I have one who's defending me. I have one who seeks my glory and who judges. He judges me. He just judges me to make sure that I am doing what's right, but he also will judge you. So I don't need to defend myself. And even more than that, if you dishonor me, you're dishonoring the one who's devoted to upholding my glory, which is a really bad thing to be dishonoring. Jesus is graciously giving a warning here. I don't have a demon, and you will be judged by the one who is seeking my glory. Warnings are precious. We tend to not like warnings. Don't tell me not to do something. I'm fine. I'll figure it out on my own. We tend to just dismiss warnings. Even in the Bible, we just don't like them. But warnings are precious to us. I I don't think it would matter how loudly, how abrasively, how poignantly, I, I don't think it would matter even how offensively a warning would be given to you 
if you were running off the edge of a cliff and about to fall to your death. I don't think if somebody stopped you from falling to your death by screaming at you or by yelling at you or by even getting angry at you or or cursing at you, I don't think that you would come back and would say, you know what, that was an awful way of giving me a warning. You shouldn't have done that. I, I think we would just say, thank you for the warning. Warnings are precious. God gives us gracious warnings, and that's what Jesus is doing here. There is one who judges. And there is one who seeks my glory. You must seek my glory too. And if you don't, you will be judged. But here's the beauty of what Jesus is going to do next. And here's the beauty of the Gospel of John. One of the reasons why I love John. John has warnings inside of it, yes. But the Gospel of John is primarily not warnings. The Gospel of John is primarily gracious invitations. And so Jesus gives a warning, but then he follows it up with a gracious invitation. Verse 51 Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Truly, truly, this is true. He's about to say something that's going to sound like it's not true. And so he says, I'm I'm telling you it's true. If anyone, this is the gracious invitation, even the people who are blaspheming him at that moment, you could stop blaspheming and turn right now and you would receive me as eternal life. You can do that now, he's saying. So in this, he gives us a gracious invitation. A beautiful picture of what it means to answer those who have objections about Christianity, about Jesus. Somebody blasphemes Jesus to you, speak the truth. I don't have a demon. Give a warning. God will uphold his glory and will judge. And give a gracious invitation. And if anyone would come, if anyone would come. That's what Jesus does. This is incredible mercy. One of the one of the biggest questions that I get a lot is when people are sharing the gospel with family members or friends they've known for a while, and they just keep on rejecting. And the question that I get is, so what about this pearls before swine passage? Like, am I done? Have I done my duty? I'm not supposed to give them the gospel anymore, right? I don't know the answer to that, but all I know is if there was ever a pearls before swine case, It's this, when somebody tells Jesus you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan pagan man, and yet he once again gives the gospel invitation. If anyone would do this, if anyone would come, if anyone would come, they will never see death. Really, it's an emphatic word. They would never, ever see death. This is not even a possibility. Jesus is taking, most commentators would say, Jesus is taking a phrase. It was an idiom that the Jewish people had. And this was an idiom to say, uh, look, there are a lot of things that you can miss in life, but one thing that we will all see in life is death. We're all going to see it. We're all going to end in death. We're all going to taste death. We're all going to die. That's something that we can't bypass. So some commentators would say he's taking that and twisting that to say you don't have to see death if you follow me. Some believe that he's just stating a, a teaching of his from the Lord, from, from the Father, through Jesus, of a gospel reality. But I love what he says. He, Jesus does not say that you won't ever die. He doesn't say, if you follow me, if you keep my word, you won't die. What he says is actually even more breathtaking than that. What he says is, you won't even see it. The word see is to fix on something, to gaze on something. It's not glancing. It's You won't even be able to look at it. It won't be something that you remember. It won't be something that you're a part of. 
You're going to go to sleep in this life. You'll wake up in the next life and you'll be thinking, what just happened? What just happened? In verse 52, the Jewish people say, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. The reason why I say that they say that word is Jesus doesn't correct them. They're, they're on the right track here when they say taste of death. Jesus says you're never going to see death. They say you're never going to taste death. They misquote him, but Jesus says that's fine. That's what I'm meaning. You got the idea. You're not going to taste it. You're not going to realize it. You're not going to understand it. You're not going to be touched by it. What's the condition? If anyone keeps my word. We talked about that a bunch two weeks ago. Um, the, the defining characteristic of being a disciple. So you can look two weeks ago to that message. You have to keep my word. Follow me. Everything that it means to be Jesus, everything that it means to be God, follow him. Follow the plan of salvation that he has given to you. Follow him. And if you would do that, you would never see death. So we have to stop here. How can you not see death? Death is everywhere. We're all going to die. Death is coming for each and every one of us. It's the great equalizer. Nobody can say, I cheated death. I got out of it, and I'm not going to die anymore. It's not going to happen. There's no possibility. Nobody can say that. We're all going to die. And I don't say that to be morbid. I say that because that's the reality, and I believe my job as a pastor is to prepare you for that day. My job as a pastor is to get you ready to die. The reality is we're all going to die sooner than we think we will. My job as a pastor, one of my many privileges as a pastor, is to be able to get you to a place where that day is a glorious day for you. How do you say that? It's separation from friends, family, from this life. How do you say that day is glorious? For some of us, it might be a very painful thing to die doesn't mean that it won't be painful. It could be a very awful, torturous, painful death. But it could be a glorious day as well. The day of our death as believers should be one of the best days in our lives and something that we are looking forward to and something that is glorious. We look forward to Christmas. We look forward to our birthdays. Kind of not anymore as you get older. Like, yeah, a pair of socks, thanks. Um, but with the, with the same enthusiasm that our kids long for Christmas or open up a, a, a present on Christmas Day. So we should be looking, uh, the day of our death should look that way to us. This is a paradox. This is a paradox because Jesus says you're not even going to see death, but then Jesus is going to die. So what does this mean? If you're a follower of Jesus, you will never die, but you're going to die. How does this work? What does this mean? Let's ask John to help us out. Go to John chapter 11. I'm going to go to a couple different passages here. John chapter 11. What does Jesus mean when he says you're not even going to see death? If we're going to die and we're all going to die, what does it mean that we're not going to die? How does this fit together? John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says this is, uh, uh, Lazarus has died. And Jesus says to Martha, um, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 
So, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So that's helpful. You're going to die, but you'll live even though you die. But then he says categorically, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What's he saying here? I think it's the same thing that he's saying back in John 8. You will die physically. But you will never die spiritually. The second death, Revelation 19 and 20, the second death will never hurt you. You will never die in the second death by being separated from God for all eternity in hell. But also, even if you die, which we will physically, you will live. You will be separated in a millisecond from your physical body and your soul, immortal, will live on forever. It's going to be a, a moment and your, your relationship with Jesus will never be severed. Your fellowship with him in that moment will never be severed. I think John chapter 5 helps us probably in an even more specific way. Go to John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You have it now. And you do not come into judgment, so the second death won't hurt you. But you have passed out of death into life. So, for a believer, you have already passed out of death and into life. You've already done the hard part as a believer, because Jesus did that through you. You died already. And so you have eternal life now. If you have eternal life now, the qualification of what it means to be eternal when we say eternal life, is that it never ends. So if you have eternal life now, there's not a moment when you won't have it. Therefore, there's not a moment that you don't have life. Therefore, there's not a moment that you could ever die. You have eternal life. You're never going to lose it. So our bodies die, yes. But for a believer, and this is why Paul uses this, there's a couple of other places in the Gospels where this is used. The word sleep is used to refer to believers dying. Just It's sleep. Their bodies go to sleep. Their souls are alive. They're dead, but they're not dead. They're dead, but they're not dead. One of the greatest messages to be able to preach at the funeral of a believer is that so-and-so is not dead. They're not dead. You think that they're dead. You think that they're gone. They're not dead. They're more alive than we are. That's the reality that we can have in Jesus Christ because of what he has done on the cross. Mark chapter 5, Jesus says this, the, the little girl, Jairus' daughter, is only sleeping. She's dead. She's only sleeping. Why? Why does he say that? Because for Jesus, it's as easy to raise somebody from the dead as it is to just say, hey, wake up to somebody who's asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, you can just write it down. In the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we will be changed. Do you ever stop and think about that moment? You ever stop and think about how close that moment is? It seems so far away when Jesus will take us to be home, but oh, it's so close. James talks about this life being a vapor. It's just a mist that goes away. And every day, every year, it just it comes faster and faster, that last day. And there's only two ways that you can think about that last day. Rejoice because it's a glorious day because you'll be with Jesus. 
or dread it because you have no idea what's going to happen. More on that later. Turn back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. So Jesus gives an amazing, or John chapter 8, excuse me. Jesus gives an amazing gospel invitation. If anyone would keep my word, would follow me, you'll never see death, ever. And the Jews are going to respond with mocking. They mock Jesus for this statement. Now we know, and there's no progress has been made in this argument. You have a demon, you're a Samaritan. Well, let me say something. Jesus says something. I don't have a demon, not a Samaritan. Uh, I am sent by God. I am God, very God. And if you believe in me, you will never see death. And they go, yeah, we're right. Now we know it. Um, This is just going downhill very, very, very quickly. So they mock him. By the way, as they hear Jesus' words, they're attributing his words to Satan, to a demon. This is what false religion does every time. False religion says the words that God speaks, we think it's from Satan. And the words that Satan speaks, we think those are from God. That's false religion. They're entrenched in it, as we saw last week. And so they say, basically, in effect, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? We know that you have a demon. Verse 52, Abraham died. The prophets died. You say, if anyone keeps my word, you'll never even taste of death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. So who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? This, I just, I can't wait for heaven when we get to see the DVD library of this moment. Because I just have to believe that Jesus smirks a little bit. When they say, who are you? That's just serving up a softball to hit a home run off of. I would be happy to tell you who I am. So he answers, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is your God. So you know who you think your God is? He's actually my father and he's not your God. You haven't come to know him, verse 55, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'm going to be a liar just like you. So I'm going to tell you I do know him and I keep his word. So who am I? I am the son of God. I am equal to God. And just to hammer that point home, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Once again, they blaspheme him. We know that you have a demon. Who do you think you are? Jesus answers with truth and he answers with another gracious invitation. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In effect, implied, are you going to rejoice? You can rejoice to receive me today, and you will have eternal life as well. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says, look, I've been affirmed by God the Father. No one needs to affirm me. You don't need to affirm me. I don't even need to affirm myself. I'm going to speak the truth. But by the way, let me give you one nugget of truth. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What is the day referring to? Can I just tell you, I read 17 commentaries, and every single commentary had a different answer for what this day is. This day uh, is an enigma to so many Bible scholars. Um, They wonder, is it when uh, Jesus showed up Uh, in Genesis to Abraham's house and to his tent and said, you're going to have a son. Is it all the way back when the prophecy was made in Genesis 3 that the Messiah is going to come? We don't know. 
But the good news is we don't need to know the specifics of what this day is because we know the point of what Jesus is saying. The point of what Jesus is saying is so implicit in what he says that the Jews are going to pick up on it. Verse 57, they're going to say to him, you're not yet even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? So they know the point. The point is, I was around when Abraham was around. That's the point of what Jesus is saying. Abraham saw my day, he knew my day, and he's rejoicing to see my day. I was around when Abraham was around. And they catch that. And they say, you couldn't have been around. Abraham. We're talking thousands of years. You can do that. I love how they say, you're not yet 50. Luke tells us he's only 30 when he started his ministry. So ministry's taking a toll on Jesus here that they would even think you're looking like 50, but you're not quite there yet. And the Jews say, you're not greater than Abraham. You're not older than, you've not seen Abraham, have you? And Jesus says, verse 58, truly, truly. Again, another statement that is going to be hard to hear. So he backs it up by saying, this is truth, what I'm about to tell you. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, this is a very weird sentence, grammatically speaking. This is bad grammar. Jesus gets an F in grammar here. But it's bad grammar for a point. There are so many people that say Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you heard that before? Jesus never claimed to be God. Just a good teacher. There's really no better section in Scripture to point to to show that Jesus claimed to be God. Through and through. John 8, 58. Jesus says, I am. What is he referring to? Exodus 3, 14 and 15. Exodus 3, 14 says God is declaring his name. When Moses says, who, who should I say uh, sent me when I go before Pharaoh? Who should I tell him? Tell them, I am sent you. Jesus is making himself out to be God, very God. And in case somebody who is reading this might say, well, no, that's kind of a stretch. It's not because verse 59, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They're doing what good Jewish people should do if somebody claims to be God when they're not. They're going to kill him by stoning him. Jesus knows his hour has not yet come. He hides himself, whether that's supernaturally or just um, being very smart and quick, little ninja reflexes. He gets out of there. He leaves. He's not going to die here. He needs to die on a cross. The Jews knew he was claiming to be God. If if Jesus had said, if Jesus had said, uh, if he had wanted to say, I was the first created being by God the Father, and then I created everything. I was the first created being, so I existed before Abraham, and then I created everything. I'm not God, I just was created by God, and then I created everything. Which some cults would believe, some false religions would believe that. He would have said, in verse 58, before Abraham was born, I was. It's a very easy way to say that. I existed before Abraham. But he's not just wanting to say, I existed before Abraham. He's wanting to say, I am God. I am God. They pick up stones to to throw at him because they know he claims to be God. You realize that if Jesus had claimed to be an angel, um, like Michael the archangel, which is what uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe, Uh, they believe that um, Jesus and Michael are the same person. Michael's in heaven, comes down as Jesus, goes back to heaven as Michael. Just an angel. Um, if that were the case, if Jesus were to say, I'm just an angel, I honestly don't think the Jewish people would have picked up stones to kill him. 
okay, fine, you're deluded and you're crazy, but you're just an angel. When you claim to be God, very God, that's when they're going to pick up stones to kill you. And again, they're doing their job as good Jewish people. So, Jesus is God. The deity of Jesus is on display. I am. He is God, very God. And death has been killed for those who would follow him. The implication of these verses is very clear. Since Jesus is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the maker of all things, when he speaks, it happens. It's true. His words are true. Therefore, when he tells us this morning, you will never see death, it's true. If you're a believer, you will never see death, ever. So I want you to turn to Hebrews. We've read this passage already, but turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to show you, I want to finish up by showing you the practical application of these realities. That God sent his son, fully man, fully God, in Jesus Christ, so that we would never have to fear death. I want to show you the implications from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, children of God. So going back two messages ago, we are adopted. The son has set us free. We are adopted as sons and daughters, not by anything we have done. We don't pay for our own adoption. God puts the money down through his blood and saves us and draws us into his family. We are his children. We share in flesh and blood. We are, that's just, we are human. We are flesh and blood. Because of that, he himself likewise also partook of the same. The same what? The same things, flesh and blood. He partook of flesh and blood. Who partook? Jesus Christ partook of flesh and blood. So Jesus, exalted, existed before the incarnation, steps out of heaven, the eternal incarnate word, God, very God, 100% human at the exact same time. Why? Why? That through death. This is why. God can't die. So Jesus had to become human so that he could die. So that he could purchase those who are alienated and hostile enemies of God. God had to become human so that he could die. So that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus, when he died, defanged the devil. How did he do that? He covered all of our sins. And that means that Satan has no legitimate grounds to accuse us before God. This is Romans 8, 33. Who is going to bring a charge against God's elect? God justifies. So who can condemn? No one can. So through Jesus' death, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Satan's ultimate weapon against us is our own sin. So if Jesus takes away our sin, Satan has no power. Satan has no power. This is why 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that where, O death, is thy sting? Where, O grave, is thy victory? What's the sting of death? He says the sting of death is our sin. Staring eternity face to face and realizing when I step into eternity from this life to the next, I'm going to have to give an account to the God who made me, and I have all of this sin that I'm going to have to pay for. That's why death has a sting. That's why we're afraid 
to pass from this life to the next. So if that sin, that whole weight, like Pilgrim's Progress, is taken away, we have no sin to answer for because Jesus has answered for us. Therefore, we have no fear in death, no fear whatsoever. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. Verse 15, And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We are enslaved our whole lives to the fear of death. We don't even know it. We, we wake up in this world, and before you know it, we're doing everything possible to deny death. The latest fad diet, the latest Botox surgery, the latest way the latest and greatest way to make sure that we don't look like we're about to die. We don't want to go there. We try all sorts of different ways to deny that death is going to happen. You can ask anybody. No one has an answer. How can we make death not happen? Somebody asks you that. How can we make death not happen? I don't want to die, so how can I make sure that doesn't happen? No one has an answer for that except for Jesus. No one has an answer for that except for Jesus. And Jesus' answer is, I am the Word incarnate. I am the Word made flesh. I died the death you deserve so that you could go free, be adopted as my son or daughter. Therefore, for you to die physically will be just like sleeping. You're going to sleep and you're going to wake up in my arms. So death for you as a believer is gain. You finally get to be with me where I am for all of eternity. I've been preparing a place for you, and now it finally comes about. This is the gracious invitation that Jesus gave to a stubborn, hard-hearted people at the end of John 8. If anyone would come, if anyone would keep my word, you would have the exact same freedom from the fear of death. Have nothing to fear. No more punishment. No more condemnation. Satan can never overturn the decree of Jesus. Nothing to fear. So I ask you, what's your view of death? Just be very practical. Are you afraid to die? We all know that quote. I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, Are you afraid to die? I totally understand if you are. There are two reasons we would fear death. One is because we truly aren't saved. We just aren't. And we're afraid that when we stand before God, we're going to have to answer for our sin. This is the great white throne judgment. Books being opened before God and a whole line of every single human that's ever existed. And in this book, all of the sins that you've ever committed. And you have to answer for that. And if you're going to pay for your sin, you have to pay for it with your life for all of eternity in hell. Or you can throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus and say, please pay that for me and follow him. Keep his word. Be united with him in his death and with him in his life. Maybe you're not saved. Maybe you're not saved. And today I would just offer you the exact same invitation that Jesus gave thousands of years ago. If anyone would follow him, you would be able to be freed from the fear of death. Or, Second option is maybe you are a believer, but you're pressing more into the condemnation of your sin than you're pressing into the salvation offered in Jesus. You're staring at your sin and you're struggling with the condemnation that your sin brings. Guilt is a good thing. 
So many people think guilt is a bad thing. It's a very good thing. It drives us to repentance. And it should drive us to Jesus for cleansing. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Let guilt do its job. Sending you to Jesus. Begging forgiveness and finding freedom in him. And then throw the guilt away. See, the moment we find forgiveness in Jesus Christ... And we start to throw the guilt away. We're done. It it pushed us to Jesus and we're good and we're united with Christ and we love him. We're in sweet fellowship with him. Guess who comes along to pick up that baton of your guilt? Satan picks it up and says, you dropped something. Here's your guilt. Here's your shame. You need to take this because you're still a sinner. And that, I believe, is when believers struggle with fearing death. And they hang on to that baton and they realize, wait, I am guilty. You are guilty. But Jesus became guilty for you so that you could go free. Believer, this morning, if you are not afraid of dying, then what do you have to fear? This is the last greatest enemy. And if we are not afraid to die, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. My prayer as I was studying this and just thinking and praying for our church, my prayer is that our church would be a church of fearless men and women who are so secure in Jesus Christ that we have absolutely no fear of death, no fear whatsoever. This is what will drive good missionaries. This is what will drive good pastors. This is what will make amazing godly men and women in the workplace and in the home who are unafraid of death, who say, come what may, I am with Jesus. I'm secured now to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm set. So if you're not afraid of dying, there's nothing you can be afraid of. That is the last greatest enemy. And if you are not afraid of dying, the world will look at you and just scratch their head. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to live in such a way, salt and light in the world, that people go, they're just a little off balance when they hang out with us. Wait, you're excited about the day that you die? Mm Mm-hmm. Can't wait for it. Because that's my ticket to be with Jesus. That makes no sense to a non-believing world. So the world desperately needs the courage and the Christ of fearless Christians who know that they will never taste death. So can I plead with you to be one? God, I pray that you would be pleased to work in our hearts um, to make us men and women who would be disciples in such a way that we would not fear death, not for one moment. The sting of death is sin, and our sin has been taken away. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. So God, make us fearless. Make us men and women who would stare death in the face and laugh and say, thank you for leading me to my Savior. Make us countercultural. Make us mind-boggling to the world around us. Not for our glory, but for your glory. That we would be able to show the anchor and the security for our soul found in Jesus Christ. That what the world fears, we do not. Make that so this day as we sing and confirm all of these truths in our hearts.